Hey, fanboy nation. This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching. Fanboy. 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 A fanboy, etc. Fanboy nation. God, I assume Tom. September 21st is International Day of Peace, and we are celebrating a moment in history uh, that will be coming to virtual theaters in the United States on September 25th with a documentary entitled We Are Many. Uh, Director and producer Amir Amirani is with me today. Uh, Amir and I both have similar backgrounds. We're uh, immigrants to, uh, or at least our parents are immigrants to other countries. Um, on my end. And Amir is a bit of an activist, whereas I started off as a journalist. Amir, how are you today? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. I, uh, I hope you're well. I, I, um, I was actually born in Iran and came to England when I was nine. And, um, I would actually say just to, at this point that I, I'm, I wouldn't call myself uh, an activist because I think there are real activists mm-hmm. out there. I, uh, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker who made a film about uh, an activist story, but, um, I'm sure activists would object if I referred to myself as that. Well, there are different forms of activism. So no. at least we'll give you the, the effort for it in promoting them. There you go. Um, you know, February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day 2003 was a very interesting day. <laughs> But I need to tell you this story before we get there because we're going to go back to November 7th, 2000. Okay. Uh, that was the United States election night, uh, presidential election night. Yeah. I was a student at San Francisco State University getting my bachelor's degree in journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't like either candidate and there wasn't a third party candidate that I liked. So mm-hmm. I left it blank for president because I knew the electoral college would decide it one way or the other because I understand that we live in a republic and not a democracy. Um, I got lambasted by both sides, by, by students on the left and the right. Mm-hmm. And roughly 1130, 12 o'clock at night, the results come, come in. And the Electoral College has declared, uh, George W. Bush is president of the United States of America. Right. Um, San Francisco is a very liberal city. So the conservative students were, uh, somewhat smirking, but cheerful inside, uh, the liberal students were, were more visibly upset. And I stood on my desk in the newsroom that night and I told everyone to prepare for war with Iraq. Mm. And everyone looked at me as if I was an insane human being. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I have to ask you then, please. What, what was it that at that point made you? So sure. I mean, you were absolutely right, but where did, where did it come from? It comes from the notion, if you watch the history and the relationship between George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush, um, not only is it the idea of the sins of the father get carried over onto the son, mm-hmm. but there was still that, you know, your father is a World War II hero. Your father was head of the CIA. Your father was vice president of the United States of America. Your father achieved things that most men couldn't even dream or fathoming of coming into existence. And that's in your house and that's what raised you. So no matter what you do, you're not good enough for your father. You know, mm-hmm. and we knew that George Bush received a couple of DUIs while, while in college. He was an average student. He didn't have the drive or desire that his father had. 
So mm. it was that my father didn't finish Saddam in 1991. Mm-hmm. I'm going to finish the job that my father didn't. Right. Yeah. Even though Bush Sr. knew that if he went into Baghdad, that was it. It would have been, it would have created a power vacuum, which we had afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So well, everybody knew I was insane or thought I was insane. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That, um, people didn't want to kind of, um, believe that. But, um, yeah, I mean, less than a year later, um, um, I mean, you know, it's interesting. They then showed that within, it wasn't even within days. I think it was within hours of the attack on September 11th. I think there was a scribbled note, uh, Rumsfeld to somebody saying, um, get me all the information about, you know, you know, any Iraqi connections, you know, to this. Of course, there were no Iraqi connections to it, but, um, it, it, they were just waiting for an opportunity which presented itself. Um, so, yeah. You know, the, this is the cynical part of myself and you living in London could easily understand this as well. Why did people seem so surprised with the mm. lie? Mm. Uh, let's go back, you know, 1918, end of World War One. You know, Sykes-Pico signed the agreement to divide up the Middle East and entirely uh, draw borders that shouldn't have existed. Parts of Syria should have been parts of Lebanon. Parts of, uh, what's it called? Iran should have been parts of Iraq. Parts of Iraq should have been parts of Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. The borders are, are very skewed. You know, Kuwait, Kuwait is created and it's no longer part of Iraq itself. Sure. Uh, just for the divvy up of what the French and the English did. So this is right. 1919. 1932, you know, um, a gentleman named, uh, Yosef Melek, he's an Assyrian from Iran act. I think he was from Iran or from a border town in Iraq, mm-hmm. uh, helped the British in World War One, was an interpreter for the British in World War One, worked with the British administration until 1932. The promises of the recreation of an Assyria, uh, biblical Assyria, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, the, the desire for the Simile massacre to be recognized, everything. And the Brits promised him that, and that didn't come to fruition. And King Faisal in Iraq is taken into power, mm-hmm. which eventually, you know, led to the Ba'ath party and their overthrow. Um, yeah. we'll fast forward. You're nine years old. It's revolution time in Iran. Um, you know, we go there and it's heartbreaking for people like you and me. Quite simply because, you know, the Iran that our parents knew isn't the Iran of today. You know, there was a book written, uh, Iran under the Pahlavi by George, um, Lenowski. He was the editor of it. And his, in his, um, dedication, uh, in 1978, a year before anything happened, he wrote, the, this book is dedicated to the people of Iran whose ancient and unique civilization is experiencing in the mid-20th century a spectacular resurgence and progress for the benefit of their own and the world at large. And then a year later, we face this revolution. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter and British Prime Minister James Callahan, you know, help oust the Shah and bring in the Islamic Revolution. Then in, in 1980, all these people sided with Saddam 
against the new regime of Iran. So Rumsfeld, you mentioned his name, you know, the British Parliament, um, everything else. So why are we so surprised that the Americans and that the British lied to the people of the world to get what they wanted when we have, uh, at this point, when we get to uh, 2001, you know, this 94 year or eight, I'm sorry, 84 years of influence in the region. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, Iranians or people who are from the region and know the record of the, 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 the British and then latterly the Americans, uh, I guess would not be surprised. I think the surprise came from people, you know, in the West who, um, hadn't seen a protest on that scale and had never seen such a blatant disregard of that scale of protest uh, on the part of the, you know, government. Um, they, you know, the people still had a faith in, in democracy as they knew it, you know, that governments listen to the people, at least take note of huge uh, protests on a scale that had never seen been seen before. So in Britain, you know, in London, it was sort of two million people, give or take, uh, the largest in British history. The same was true in uh, Spain, in 50 sort of cities, five million people, the biggest in the history of Spain. In Rome, three million people in Rome. You know, the, the, the records were shattered sort of everywhere. And people thought, well, you know, how many times have I heard people saying, They've got to listen when they see a crowd like this. I mean, I think there's even a line like that in the film. Right. So I think the surprise that you're talking about is definitely here in the West where, where it was a moment of rupture, historic moment of rupture. It was the most visible, um, demonstration or illustration of the, um, disconnect between people and the government mm-hmm. and, and people's, um, Faith in all sorts of things were irreparably uh, shattered and, and, and broken. Faith in democracy, faith in government, um, faith in the institutions, faith in, faith in the law. You know, um, everyone said it was illegal. All international law scholars said it was illegal. Even Kofi Annan, as we saw in the film, says it's illegal. Um, they didn't even try to hide the illegality. You know, I, I think at that point... Uh, George Bush and Tony Blair didn't even care. It was a, it was a pretense that they kind of kept up for as long as it suited them. Right. Um, but again, as I show in the film, they had already made up their minds. There's a clip in which Tony Blair says to George Bush, I'll be with you, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the UN says, whatever the situation, I'll be with you. Um, so you're quite right. Nobody should have been surprised. But people in the West were, people in the Middle East, I think, knew better because they had experience of exactly what you're talking about. Do you think it was a level of ignorance in the West because we bought into this sense of nationalism of my country is the good country. There's no way our governments would do anything against the will of the people. That only happens in Asia. That only happens in Africa. That only happens in South America. It doesn't happen in the first world European North American, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon, uh, Aryan countries, you know, yeah. is it that level of hubris or ignorance? I don't, you know, I don't know if it is, uh, hubris or ignorance. 
I, I, I think it's because the institutions of these countries, um, the, 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 the media, um, and the, the overall culture perpetuates, um, and cultivates an image of ourselves, a self image of uh, the people on uh, always on the right side of history that, you know, um, the, 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 a kind of, you know, civilizational clash almost, you know, they talk about Western civilization and, and as a kind of in contradistinction to the rest of the world who are not civilized, you know? Um, and that, is, that image, that self image is perpetuated. And, and, you know, in a way you can't blame people here for, you know, largely buying into that, uh, because why wouldn't you, you know, this is, this is what you brought up on, you know, we're always on the side of side of good. And, and I think in not everyone, of course, there's a, there are a lot of, I mean, I say a lot, there, there, there is a constituency that does know the history of empire, does know the history of colonialism and knows it to be a troubling history, but that history isn't really taught here. And in fact, just as a sideline to this discussion, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter movement that has been spreading around the world in these, these protests has brought to light in the UK this discussion of what do we actually know about colonial history, the history of slavery. And, you know, it's being talked about all the time now because the, you know, uh, we we don't learn or we don't teach the history of empire and colonialism and slavery and so on. So I just I guess I'd be a bit more charitable that I would say it's not um, uh, it's not willful ignorance or hubris. It is the system that basically creates this creates the the, the ignorance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully they'll start shedding light on that because people also tend to ignore that. East Africa ha- had a hand in it. Uh, other African uh, n- nations and tribes had a hand in it. The Arabs had a hand in it. It wasn't just the Portuguese and the Dutch that, that forced it. So, you know, hopefully that get, gets resolved at some point or at least recognized at some point. Yeah. Um, you know, this protest was a big deal, but you have an artist in the film, a musician whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. And please forgive me, uh, an English gentleman. He's wearing, he's wearing kind of like a golf cap. Oh, Damon Albarn from Blur, and yes. the other band he's a part of is Gorillas. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, you know, and he said in the documentary, and I'm paraphrasing that um, we could have, you know, the first week was a surprise. If we had continued on a second week, they would have been, been fear, they would have been uh, shocked. And a third week, we could have gotten real change. <clears throat> um, at some point. You know, as great as it was and as amazing as it was, 30 million people globally participating in this and having the governments finally realize that if the people are united, the majority can surpass the minority in charge. Um, it stops and the government goes back to business as usual. Is there, again, uh, you know, a level of hubris or a level of pride, you know, self-gratification in that? You know, we did something tremendous, huzzah, and then forget about it. And then I'm going to the French bakery to get a croissant and and some coffee and see you guys later. We'll figure it out then. Well, there there may have been an, an element of 
you know, as, 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 um, Damon says in the film, I think, uh, or certainly he did in the interview, whether it's in the film or not, where he says there was a sense of triumphalism. And there was a, a, a sense of that, not a kind of boasting triumphalism, but, but I suppose a joy at seeing something that big. Um, but I would go back to a point, which is that nobody expected to see a, a crowd that size. And so on one level, they thought that this is just unbelievable. Surely they cannot ignore this. And so maybe some people thought we don't need to go back because we've made such a big statement that they're going to listen, you know, one. And really there wasn't much of a history of repeated demonstrations. I mean, in the UK, well, there was uh, the older Marston marches, there was the Green and Common women who did, you know, weeks, months, it could have been even years. Uh, I think it was years, actually, that they, you know, had their encampment. Um, but that was on a very, very small scale. It wasn't on a mass scale. The other point that Damon also makes um, is that, you know, the reality is that people have lives, you know, they've got to do shopping, they've got to fill up their cars with gas, they've got to um, get on with their lives. It's not, it's simply not possible or feasible for, uh, you know, repeated weekly, you know, uh, demonstrations. Although I guess the point that he makes is that when it's as big, uh, um, something as big at stake as war, then maybe people should sacrifice I don't know, work or, you know, whatever. Um, and so, you know, other people talked about workers going on strike, you know, unions going on strike. Uh, some people wanted to go further and do nonviolent civil disobedience or nonviolent direct action. Uh, some people did do that. You know, some people went and disabled um, an, an aircraft, uh, a fighter jet, um, and actually they were, the, the, the judge let them off because they said, although that's a crime, you were trying to stop a bigger crime. Um, so yeah, you know, the, Ken Loach in the film describes that day as a great missed opportunity. And I think it's easy in, you know, and I don't know if I would disagree with that or if I would agree with that because it's easy to say that in hindsight that people should have done more. I think the truth is nobody, not even the organizers in every single country thought it would be as big in their countries or in any way as global as it was, you know, 789 cities in 72 countries. Nobody expected that. It, it blew all of them away. And, and, you know, <laughs> the organizers in the UK were just a handful of people in an office in the East end of London. Um, how do you, how do you deal with something like that? How do you follow it up? It was nothing that happened afterwards could have followed that, could have, you know. And so it re it will remain a point in history to ask what could have, you know, followed. And also, when you've done the biggest demonstration in in in, in history, and it and a war still goes ahead. Um, what do you do? I mean, Bill Fletcher, who is in the film, asks precisely that question. When you've done one, two or three big protests, what's next? And 
we, you know, 18 years later, we're still seeing the repercussions of what happened. We're, we're still there in, in one capacity or another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the way I, my, well, the way my mind works was they were going to Iraq again, not only, uh, to finish what, what the father didn't finish to prove, you know, a, about that, that bit, but also quite possibly a two front war on Iran. You know, we had mm-hmm. Afghanistan was in the process. Iraq is in the process. Iran is right in the middle. Uh, you know, Callahan and Carter and I, and I freely admit this and I will say this till I'm dead that Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter destroyed one of the foundational posts of Western civilization in what has happened to Iran over the last 40 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and people forget Mesopotamia, Egypt, Iran, Phoenicia. These are all foundational posts leading into Western Europe from the ancient Near East. And so to see what Iran is, you know, you were nine years old when you left. If you had stayed. I was, um, yeah, I was nine years old when I left, which is three years before the revolution. Yeah. Okay. So if you had stayed by 1982, you easily could have been a minesweeper. Mm-hmm. You know, in the, in the Iran Iraq war. Um, that's quite, uh, yeah, that's, Quite, quite possible. That's quite possible. I mean, I, um, in a, in another interview, it would be interesting to have a discussion about, uh, you know, uh, about Iran and, and right. so on and what it was before and so on. I mean, bear in mind, I, I've just worked on a documentary called Coup 53, which is about the coup that overthrew, uh, Mossadegh in Iran and put the Shah, you know, in place and, you know, um, which has, you know, all its own, uh, complications and, um, and so on. Right. Um, and, you know, it was, you know, Mossadegh represented, you know, democracy and, and, and so on. But well, the point I would say is that the interference at okay. any level of the West has never been good. And there's, and there's always been blowback. And, and that's what, that's what I'm, I'm getting to. It's just that we want to, I'm connecting the dots between right. that, what led up to, to 2003, 30 million people. I mean, there was an Egyptian uh, journalist that said these white whiskey drinkers over there are protesting on the behalf of Iraq, <clears throat> which led to the Arab Spring, which led to everything that happened in the Middle East. Um, take yeah. me back to 2003. Were you at this protest? Were you, you know, or were you sitting back, excuse me, and oh. wanting to see what happened? And then what was the catalyst for you to want to tell the story? We are many. Yeah, absolutely. 2003, um, I actually had been selected to go to the Berlin Film Festival as part of something called the Berlinale Talent Campus. And uh, out of a few hundred of us, five of us were selected to make films based on ideas that we'd submitted. So I was lucky enough to be one of them. Um, and um, I made my film, and luckily it was kind of runner-up. And I was, I was actually, it was really weird because I... Um, the person who selected the ideas was Vim Benders, the filmmaker, and I ended up um, shooting a little bit with Dennis Hopper. So it was kind of a bizarre experience, and it was, you know, Berlin was um, was um, freezing. Now, I knew this protest was was happening. I had not been, you know, uh, I'd made political films, but I also made art and history and music and so on, uh, and I hadn't really been on a protest before, but I went on this protest. I knew it was happening and I asked myself, should I stay in Berlin or should I go back to London? And I thought, look, I'm here. Let me just go here. 
and it was amazing. It was great. Very energizing. I went back to uh, London and I just remember distinctly my London friends. There was a kind of level of excitement about having been on this protest that I'd never seen before. They were saying, oh, God, you don't know what you missed. You know, two million people. And I I was kind of shocked by by this. And also by the fact that I then felt sad that I'd missed this uh, important kind of historic event. So I was thinking, oh, this is this is really interesting. And it kept sort of bugging me and I kept coming back to it. And eventually I decided, like about two years later, I thought, you know what? I think there's a story here. The 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 because as I read more about it and discovered it wasn't just in London and Berlin and you know New York. Eventually the global scale of it became apparent that this was the biggest protest in history. And immediately, like a light bulb went above my head, uh, I thought, I, uh, this is a story. And I mean, it's a gargantuan story. How do you start to tell the story of a day in which, you know, some people say 30 million, some people say 15 million, but it's still the biggest protest in history. Um, how do you tell that story? But I, but I, it, I was so excited by it that I started to, the, the, you know, research it the next year in 2006. I started doing some initial interviews to get a sense of what was there. And it was good enough that I thought, you know, this, this needs to be made. Um, and also I thought it's, it's such an important historical story that it, needs to be made. Not that I want to make it, which I do, but I had to make it because it's too important not to tell. Um, now, I didn't know it was going to take me nine, ten years to make it. <laughs> you know, who would do that if they knew it was going to take that long? Um, but, yeah, but I'm very glad I, I, I did because I'm, you know, um, I'm very pleased with the film. I'm proud of it. And uh, I think it's an important um, story. And, and if it, you know, if it needed that time to make it, then it did. Well, you did a fantastic job with the documentary. I'm pleased with it, uh, and I was blown away with with the quality of something. You know, because as you said, it took you nine years to make this documentary that you have to whittle down to less than an hour and forty five minutes. Right. Yeah. That has to be one of the hardest parts. But I also want to put something in perspective that people don't fully understand, mm-hmm. because we've grown up with the shadow of England. You know, yeah. the, the old phrase, the sun has, the sun never sets on the British Empire right. and, and the expansion. But we have to put into perspective that there's two million people in the capital on an island nation. Right. This isn't Germany. This isn't France. This isn't Spain where they could spread out. This is an island nation. It's not Australia. I mean, this is just off the coast of Europe. So when people put it in perspective and realize just how small the island of England is, the nation of England is, and right. it's on an island and they're all condensed, that has to be more powerful than saying the protest in Rome. Right. And I would add something else, which is this was a freezing cold day in February um, 1. So the biggest protest in the history of this country happened on a freezing cold day. And two, for every person that came out to protest, there would have been minimum two or three, probably more, who each person knew who would have shared that view but couldn't make it, either because they were working 
or because they were maybe elderly or because they were looking after a child or, you know, or they, one reason or another couldn't make it. I mean, you and I know that probably if you have a political view, you probably know a handful of people who share that view, if not more. So the true figure, I think, of people who were opposed to war and with the, uh, the, the motivation of the protest would have been probably um, several, several times that number, you know, four or five times that number easily, which is uh, just a gigantic uh, amount of people. You know, it, it just is amazing what it's done. And I, and I want people to be clear that, you know, we're not roasting the West for, for what happened because we're in Western countries. Right. You know, we've adopted the, our parents at least, or, and you as well have adopted these Western countries as our new homes. They've accepted <clears throat> us with open arms. So, you know, obviously there've been bumps in the road, certain situations here and there, but this is still, uh, these are still our home countries. So by no means are we saying that we don't love the United Kingdom or the United States or Western Europe or anything of that sort. I just wanted to be clear on the historical context earlier that why it shouldn't be a surprise when in fact it was for so many. Sure. And, you know, I, and I think we should also just remove, you know, uh, questions of patriotism and nationalism from the discussion because we're all citizens. And in any event, being a citizen of a country does not mean unquestioning approval of everything, whether you were born here or you're an you know, immigrant once you are, you know, settled. Uh, you all have the same rights and people I think want to believe in the best of the traditions of those countries and the best of the system of laws that countries have and not, you know, to have unquestioning uh, support or give unquestioning support to criminal illegal acts, you know, because that is the kind of law of the, the jungle. We can't, you know, preach um, democracy and all sorts of other values to the rest of the world um, if we are in the business of preaching, um, if we break those laws, you know, ourselves. Absolutely. Amir, we're, we're starting to wind down because I know we're running out of time a little bit, but, you know, tomorrow night, September 21st, 8 p.m. Eastern, so here in the United States. Tonight. International- What's that? tonight is today the 21st oh my god today's the 21st so it is tonight i you can tell where my head is i'm all over the place so (laughs) 5 p.m pacific 8 p.m eastern 100 cities one night of peace we have this going on and that you know you're going to be a part of the panel uh for the power of protests with with medea benjamin and colleen kelly and bill fletcher who's also in the documentary um for people that are interested why do they need to to tune in for this or be a part of this tonight? We already had 15 to 30 million people in 2003. How are we going to make tonight significant? Um, I, I think um, I think uh, people uh, that I previously shown the film to were very very surprised uh, that they didn't know the global scale of it, uh, that it was so widespread, that it was so big. Um, and I think also a lot of people took away uh, from that huge demonstration the conclusion that, um, you know, 
protest is useless because people demonstrated, the war went still, still went ahead, so what's the point? And without giving it too much away, I want people to see the film because I think the film will reframe their understanding of that protest on that day and change that narrative of, you know, that binary of failure and, and success. Uh, suffice to say that the film shows that that demonstration sowed seeds, which uh, bloomed um, years later in the Egyptian revolution and the Arab Spring um, and, and so on. So um, movements and demonstrations don't always achieve their goals like switching on a light. Um, they have multiple impacts, which, you know, if we had time, we could, we could talk about. But one of those is that it, it has ripple effects that are unexpected and unpredictable and that you only see them after the passage of time. So I think I would like people to, um, see the film because they're going to learn a lot of history that um, hasn't been put out there, not just about the protest, but even about the war and how the war was uh, pursued and prosecuted. There are people, you know, Colin Powell's chief of staff, Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson in the film talks about his role, you know, in that. Um, we have some British politicians and um, there are all kinds of revelations, you know, Noam Chomsky's in the film, John le Carre, the famous um uh, thriller writer um, is in the film. Mark, Sir Mark Rylance, the Oscar-winning actor, um, and uh, uh, you know, and, and of course, you know Jesse Jackson, and no, you know, I think I mentioned Noam Chomsky. So, you know, there are a lot of people talking in ways that we haven't seen them talk about, um, you know, protests. So, I think for all those reasons, there's a lot for people to to see by tuning in. Amir Amirani. My new friend, uh, we, we share a background and now halfway around the world, uh, through the power of technology, we've been able to connect. Uh, your documentary is fantastic. I'm glad I got to watch it and connect with you. We are many tonight, September 21st, International Day of Peace, 100, 100 cities, uh, one night of peace, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, I can't wait to talk to you again about, about your other projects and where we go from here. This has been a fantastic chat. Oh, by the way, where can we find you on social media? And where oh, can yes. we find the documentary as well if uh, we don't get a chance to watch it tonight? Absolutely. So if if you don't get a chance to watch it, you know, right on the live stream at 8 Eastern and 5 Pacific, you still have 48 hours after the live stream to buy tickets and watch the recording of it. Um and then on the 25th of September, there's an extended virtual run in theaters around the country. Some of them will be physical, but mostly they'll be virtual. And that will go on for several weeks, maybe a couple of months. Um, and uh, for me, I'm on socials at Amir Amirani on Twitter and uh, Facebook. And um, the, the movie, We Are Many Movie uh, is on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of those things. So, um, and anyone, anyway, in any case, if people tune in, all of that, and they can go to our website as well, wearemany.com. Perfect. So all the information, tickets and socials and everything is on there. I love it. Thank you, Amir. Thank you so much. It's been fantastic talking to you.